Welcome to the Global Missions Inc. podcast. Today's episode features Andy Snoke. This morning I want to talk a little bit about, I don't know, if I had a title it would be the the Gospel of the Kingdom. How's that for a title? I've been reading, and and, and I'll give you a a kind of a warning ahead of time. I won't be able to cover everything. I've been doing a lot of reading, and reading Matthew 22, 23, 24, 25, don't worry, we're not going to cover all of that. But we're going to take some bits and pieces out of it. This is Jesus talking to the Jewish people at that day about the last days and the things that's going to happen and the tribulation and, and the false prophet and the, the abomination of desolation and watch and pray, a bunch of good stuff. And we're going to attempt to just take some truths out of these chapters, just kind of skim them. And it's the gospel of the kingdom. You know, we um, mentioned last night that this gospel that Jesus has, this gospel of the kingdom that we believe in, this gospel that we preach, it doesn't fit in with any type of politics. It is a brand new message. It's a message that doesn't fit anywhere else. We are following a kingdom and the teachings and the principles of a, of a coming kingdom. So we're just going to touch on a few things here that, uh, that are related to the gospel of the kingdom in these few chapters here. So let's go to the 22nd chapter of Matthew. Let's start with who Matthew was. Matthew was a tax collector, and I love all of the writers of the New Testament. Matthew, Levi was his name. He was a guy that collected taxes for the Roman government. He was a, a traitor as far as the Jewish people were concerned. He was barred from going to the synagogue. He couldn't even go into the house of God to worship because he was a tax collector. Back in that day, by the way, tax collectors, they were not like the IRS today. You may not like the IRS, but they're not your enemy. You don't hate them. Back then, people hated tax collectors because they were stealing from their own people. They would buy a franchise as a tax collector and collect money on behalf of the Roman government, keep track of what you owed, and they were despised. They were a despicable people. Isn't that interesting? That's who God called, is someone like that. Yep. If there's help for Matthew, the tax collector, there's hope for you and I. Yep. Matthew, by the way, what I think is interesting, one of the things that tax collectors did, they were really good at writing and recording detail. Detail. They were, they were trained at recording Detail. Why is that important? We're going to read a book that Matthew wrote that he recorded the detail of what Jesus said. His prior profession prepared him for the work that he would do for Jesus. Recording detail of the gospel of the kingdom. One day we know very little about Matthew, but he's sitting at the tax collection table sitting there collecting taxes, back taxes, and perhaps writing judgments against people because of what they owe the Roman government. And he's collecting, and most likely, like all tax collectors, he was stealing money and making himself rich from the, the Jewish, his Jewish brothers and sisters. 
One day Jesus walked by. You can read this in the book of Luke. Jesus walked by and he preached a two-word sermon. And I always, this just blesses me. I got a bunch of things written down here to preach to you today. But Jesus preached a two-word sermon. And you know, it doesn't take a lot of words. It takes the anointing. Jesus walked by. You could imagine Matthew at that table collecting money. And Jesus stopped, looked him in the eye. He didn't even call him by name. He said, follow me. That's all he said. Matthew got up. He left everything at the table. He left everything behind. Brother David talked about this gospel of the kingdom, how it will cost you everything. In one moment, one nanosecond, Matthew's heart was changed, was transformed. He was no longer that tax collector. He became one of the apostles. Matthew left that table behind him. He left everything behind behind him. No, I don't the Bible doesn't record what happened. I picture in my mind a table full of money. Jesus saying, Follow me. I picture Matthew getting up and following the Savior, the Messiah. What happened to all the money on his table? I don't know. Might have been quite a commotion, unattended. But Matthew walked away in a nanosecond from his past life to follow Jesus Christ the Messiah. The king, and we give thanks for that. You know, Matthew could probably, they could, he may have calculated how much money he owed his brothers. Money that he'd stolen from his fellow brothers, the Jewish people. And he knew in his mind and heart, he could never repay those that he stole money from all of his life. He could never repay them with money. Instead, he gave them the gospel of the kingdom. Instead, he gave his Jewish brothers and sisters a record of the Messiah and how they could walk with the Lord and how they could have riches in the heavenlies. And he gave that gospel to us as well. I know I've shared this before, but another thing that blesses me, you have to find it in the book of Luke. Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors, as I said, were despicable. Jesus said, he said, he's talking to Pharisees. He said, prostitutes and tax collectors will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. I mean, that's pretty low. That's how low tax collectors were, even in the minds of Jesus, the words of Jesus. And then Matthew, I get a, I get a kick out of this. Matthew has the opportunity in his book, a man who writes great detail, to kind of redeem his name. Jesus picks him as an apostle. And Matthew goes through the list of all the apostles, lists them by name. And then he gets to his own name. He doesn't say, in Matthew, the apostle, he says, and Levi, the tax collector. For all eternity, he reminds people of what he once was. Not what he is now, but he wants to remind people, that's what I used to be. But now I'm saved, now I'm transformed now I'm a different person. So that's the book of Matthew. That's the author of Matthew who records this message from Jesus. So we're going to have to jump into this. Matthew the 22. We're just going to pull out verses and touch and just this, these are ingredients 
of the gospel of the kingdom. Second, uh, Matthew 22, Jesus is being tempted. I'm going to go to verse 37. They're asking him, which is the greatest commandment? We'll start with there. So there are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers. They're all trying to test him, trying to trick him. They said, what's the greatest commandment? You know, to be Jewish back then, thank God for the Jewish people. To, the, to be Jewish and to be holy and to be righteous, you had to follow the laws. Not the Ten, the ten Commandments, but there's over 600 laws. 600 requirements, 600 regulations that you had to follow in order to be righteous. That's pretty hard to do. Well, it's actually impossible to do. So they wanted to test him. You know, which one of these 600 commandments here, which one is the greatest one? And Jesus starts the gospel of the kingdom. He starts it off on the right foot. You know, we can talk about all kinds of wonderful things this weekend. We can talk about the nine gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. We can talk about prophecy, speaking, being filled with the Spirit, you know, all of these wonderful things. But Jesus is going to talk about the most, the greatest thing. He says, verse 37, He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom. God comes to fill our hearts with love. To love God with all of our heart and mind and soul. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. People know that you're a Christian because you love other people. We can never get away with loving our neighbors. God has called us to love the unlovely. He's called us to love everybody about us. Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount how you are a city built on a hill. You're the salt of the earth. That's another message in itself. You've been called to bring uh, seasoning, if you will, to those around you. Learn to love people around you. Learn to be a witness to people just by the way that you live. Something we need to be careful with about, particularly being a Christian, you've got to be careful about your testimony. People are watching you all the time, and I'm not sure why it is. People that don't know the Lord, if they know that you know the Lord, they're just waiting for you to slip. They're just waiting for you to mess up. They want to say, aha, see, he's just like me. He's no better than I am. Well, they're right. We're no better than anybody else. We're like Matthew, the tax collector. But we've been forgiven. But we've got to be careful about our testimony, the way that we live, the way that we present ourselves to others, the way that we talk about other people to show love to other people. And you've got to be careful because we can slip up in the most unexpected ways. I know I've shared this story before, kind of a little confession, but we had a Sunday morning service, great meeting at home, all happy. And uh, Debbie and I went to, we go to these fancy restaurants Burger King, and we go to we go to Burger King after afterwards, you know, and uh, we go in there. I got my jacket on, I got a tie on, and there's a guy standing there at the coffee bar, and I haven't had my coffee yet, and he's got dreadlocks. Nothing wrong with having dreadlocks. He's got tattoos up one arm and down the other, and he's standing in front of the coffee thing, putting his cream in. Put his little sugar in, stirring it up. He's blocking the coffee. 
No one can get coffee because he's standing there making his coffee just perfect. I'm behind him, and I'm I'm getting impatient. I haven't had my coffee. So I'm holding my empty cup, and I'm, maybe I'll just kind of rattle it a little bit. You know, maybe he'll notice it. He didn't notice it. I thought, oh, maybe I'll start breathing a little harder. <sighs> you know, trying to put out a little sigh. Every hint I can think of to let this guy know that, hey, buddy, get moving. You know, I want to get my coffee. So I'm standing there, and I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm upset over a guy blocking the coffee. Can you believe that? Yeah. And I got my jacket on and my tie and everything. You know, people that haven't had their coffee, I'm sorry. Sometimes they get ugly. <laughs> they do. And anyway, he turns around, and, uh, and I'm thinking all of these bad things about him. And he turns around and he sees me and he says, Oh, did you have a good service at church today? And I felt so bad. <laughs> I felt so bad, you know. I didn't say anything bad to him. But what hit me was, you've got to be careful about your testimony. You've got to be careful all the time that we're showing people that God loves you and you love other people. If you love God, you love other people. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul with all your mind. Learn to love God. You know, the Bible talks about Luke, the 18th chapter, parable of the of the persistent prayer. But it's a story of the judge and the widow and and uh, the widow comes to the judge and says, avenge me and my adversary. But what always got me was this. It starts off and says, there was a judge that regarded, regarded neither man nor God. And this is what got me. If you do not have Christ in your heart, you have no regard for God. You know what else that happens? You have no regard for man. You don't care about people. But when you have a regard for God and Jesus lives in the heart, all of a sudden you love people. And we need to be careful about doing this. So this is the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, we're going to go to uh, Matthew 23, uh, verse 2 here. So Jesus, will start with one. He said to the crowds and the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they said to Moses and see. So do and observe what they tell you. Well, that's good. But not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. This is another key of the kingdom. Practice what you preach. Don't just be words. you got to live it. How's that old saying go about, I'd rather, rather see a sermon any day? You'd rather see someone live out and walk out a sermon than preach a sermon. He talked about these people that were the, the Pharisees that would preach, 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 and he, and he tells them, I think it's interesting, he tells them, listen to what they're saying, but don't do what they do, their works, for they preach, but they do not practice. When you learn something from God, put it into practice. That's, a, that's one of the keys here, one of the principles of this great kingdom. When we read in Ephesians, the sixth chapter there, about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself to, for it. That, what that means is, husbands, you go home and you love your wives as Christ loved the church. All of these commands, he says, practice it. Put it into practice. Don't just, don't just talk about it. Let's move down to verse 11, another ingredient of the gospel of the kingdom. Talking about being great. Being great. The greatest among you, verse 11, shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself 
will be exalted. This is another ingredient of the gospel of the kingdom. Humility. Being broken. Being unnoticeable. Being humble. This is very important. I want to tell you something else. When you walk with the Lord, if you really love the Lord, you give yourself to Him and you're walking with Him. If you have a trouble with pride, I'd like to encourage you, humble yourself. And I want to give you another little warning. If you don't, God will humble you. <laughs> I think if we went through the crowd here and asked people for examples and uh, instances that probably, probably all of us from time to time have been humbled. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But I want to save you a lot of pain and just say learn to humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. But be assured that God will make sure that you're humble. He will make sure that you're humble. I remember uh, Dr. Dobson. I used to love listening to Dr. Dobson, particularly when we had little kids. And he told the story of how God humbled him. There was a professor on the campus, really smart guy, really smart guy. And Dr. Dobson, it was at lunchtime, he wanted to talk to this guy so much. He wanted to have an audience with this fellow and sit down with him and tell him everything that he had learned, you know, and learned from the professor and and uh, he said he might have had a little bit of pride in him, you know, at that time. And he, he had his tray and a milkshake and a straw and a hamburger. And he said uh, uh, the professor was coming over and he was, oh, he's coming my way. I'm going to have a visit with him. And he real quickly leaned down just to get a quick sip of his milkshake before, right before the professor got there holding his tray. And the straw went up his nose. And when he stood up. Hello, Professor, there's a straw hanging out of his nose. And he said, I felt so so humbled. <laughs> he was humbled. But God does that to us. Every now and then. Every now and then the Lord lets you get a straw up your nose when you're when you're having a, a strawberry shake. And that's a good thing. But being humble to be the greatest, you must be a servant of all. Now I'm going to get into another key ingredient, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, let me read it first, and hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Okay, this is a key verse. You know, in the Old Testament, they learned tithing all the way back to Abraham. Tithing was a critical part of the Old Testament, so to speak. When you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he talks about giving, giving, giving. In the first day of the week, as Acts the 16th chapter, when you gather together to worship, you give to the Lord, be a cheerful giver. He talks about giving, 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 giving. People argue and say, but tithing's not in the New Testament. And you know, in one way they're right in the sense that Paul or Peter... None, none of them mentioned the word tithing. Did you know that? A little piece of trivia here. They, none of them mentioned tithing. Because it was something they were accustomed with in the Old Testament. And it came in the New Testament. But there's one place that somebody mentions tithing. And it happens to be the Son of God. Right here. It's the only place. Let me read it again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. He says, you tithe. He talks about them tithing. But you've neglected the way your matters. And then he says, these you ought to have done. In other words, this is what I get out of it. 
You're right in tithing. But you also need to do these other things too. And he's telling them, you, you still tithe. A tithe is 10%. We all know the scripture, Malachi 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God actually says that. He says, you're robbing me if you're not paying your tithe. We've learned this long ago, that when when we learn to set up regular tithing each Sunday morning, how God will bless you. Number one, He requires us to do it. A tithe is God's. It's really not yours. You know, I... Brother Siemens uh, told me this years ago, kind of corrected me. Uh, you pay your tithe like a bill. It's God's. And you pay it. You give a contribution, but you pay a tithe because that first 10% is God's to start with. It just happens to be in your pocket. But he asks that you give it back to him. You pay your tithe. And this is one of the few verses in the Bible where we're invited to test God. We're not supposed to test God. We're not supposed to say, uh, Lord, um, if I'm not supposed to go to work on Monday morning, uh, give me a sign by making it sunny outside. We're not supposed to test God like that or, or young men and young women. Lord, if I'm supposed to marry that woman, make it rain or something. You know, we, we're not supposed to test God like that. There are other ways that we know if somebody is right. But when it comes to tithing, this is one of the few places that God actually says, Test me. Prove me. Pay your tithe and see if I won't take care of you. Test me. Now, Debbie and I and you, we've been testing God (laughs) from day one when I learned, when I learned this principle. And God is taking care of us. We're not rich, but we are taken care of. God will take care of you. I know I've shared this before through, through the years. Debbie has this gift. She can walk into a department store where clothes are $100 for a blouse and find one on sale for 5 Yeah, She can sniff them out everywhere we go. I mean, God has blessed us in those ways with these little gifts and little abilities. And one of the reasons He did is, we, is because we tithe. Now, Mom and Dad's, and those of you that are going to have children in the future, teach your kids right from the time they're very young to pay their tithe. If they make $10 in chores, you teach them to give a dollar on Sunday morning. You, you will change the life and the trajectory of that child if you teach them how to tithe from the time they're young. I, I really, I promise you, it makes a difference if you teach them how to tithe. I know I've shared this before, maybe not all remember it, but uh, our grandson, our kids teach their kids to tithe. And our grandson, he, I don't know, he might have been four. He had 25 cents that so he was supposed to give in the collection plate. That was his tithe from his chores. Came, he happened to be sitting beside me. His mom and dad taught him, tithe, you owe the Lord 25 cents. So when the collection plate is passed and it comes by, you take your 25 cents and you put it in that collection plate. That's called a tithe. 
Sunday morning came by. He happened to be sitting beside me. Here comes the basket. He reaches up with his quarter. He holds it over the plate. His hands start shaking. He just can't let go of that quarter. The plate is still there. It felt like an eternity. It wasn't. I thought about reaching up there and squeezing his wrist, you know, to <laughs> forcing to drop it in there. And then I thought, I don't know. Is that the right lesson, you know, that grandpa's forcing you to drop your quarter? And then he stood there. And then his mom turned around. You know how moms have these dagger eyes? And she looked at him, you know, and then clunk. But what a lesson. He's only four, and he's what? He's 15. And he still ties. And he ties willingly now. But what a lesson. Even though they're little kids, you teach those people how to tie. We travel to other countries, India, uh, other places, Philippines, where places uh, where people are very poor by our standards. Churches are very poor. And you say, what can what can we do for them? How can we how can we help people and, and lift them up and help them work their way out of poverty or a higher standard of living and help their local church? Well, you know what we do? We teach them how to tithe. That's it. This principle works. In all cult- cultures, in all nations, in all languages, in all tribes, it's a godly principle of the kingdom. It's part of the gospel of the kingdom. Is to learn how to how to tithe. Okay, I'm going to go to Matthew, twenty third chapter, about the thirty seventh verse here. Jesus talks about old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen? Gathers a brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and I tell you, you will not see me again. And say, bless until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I'll go to the next verse, chapter twenty-four, first verse. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, "You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another." That will not be thrown down. He talks about this day, about this great tribulation that is coming. This is part of the plan of God. I'm not going to explain it to you because I don't understand it. He allowed the eyes of the Jewish people to be blind. He allowed their eyes to be blind. And I'm not going to blame it. I'm not even going to blame the Jewish people for being blind. God allowed their eyes to be blind. This is all in his, his plan. And what happened when they were blind, when they were blinded? The gospel came to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world, to you and I. And if that's glorious, how much more glorious will it be when the Jewish nation says, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Yeah. He talks about a day, and this is down the road when there will be a mighty restoration. There will be a restoration of the Jewish people. There'll be a, I'm talking about a restoration spiritually. He will restore them spiritually. The book of Revelation is full of these tremendous instances, and I won't go into all of it, where the Jewish people are restored. I like how he says again in verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Think of that for just a minute in prophecy. A few weeks, a few days after this, Jesus was on a donkey. They going down the street and they came out and laid down palm leaves and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Hosanna! 
It wasn't but a few days. And the same people that were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, stood there when Herod said, i got two people here, Barabbas. I can turn him loose. He's a murderer or Jesus. What should I do? They said, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What about this man? Crucify him. Crucify him. The same people that said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few days later were saying, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Because it wasn't their time yet. But Jesus made a promise. And a lot of these promises from God are just like this. They're just snuck in. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What he was saying is, and this is part of the gospel as well, many things we don't understand, the day will come. When there will be a mighty Holy Ghost revival, restoration throughout the world, and the Jewish nation will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There will be a great restoration. God has not forgotten about the Jewish people and how he deals with them in many ways is parallel to the way that he deals with the church. And we're not going to get lost or caught up in that. But the day is coming when our Jewish brothers will be restored. And they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is all part of that great plan. The 37th chapter chapter of Ezekiel talks about the valley of dry bones, and you've all heard this many times here. And he talks about uh, how the bones was prophecy, and the bones came together bone to bone. Look at this this uh, valley of dry bones. He said, can these bones live? And, and uh, the prophet said, well, you know, Lord. He said, well, prophesy. And as he prophesied, bone came to bone. Everything was dead. And then some news came to it and it stood up like a, a great army. And that was a symbol of what God was going to do. There was a rattling and bone came to bone and it came together. Uh, well, then I'll go on to say here, uh, that happened in a way. Well, let me move on here. Let me move down to verse 12 in the 37th chapter. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves. I will raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. You sh- I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you should know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and I raise you from the graves of my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. There's several parallels here. In 1948, when we talk about the beginning of the move of the Spirit, there were churches, there were people all over the land, like dry bones. Christians, but dry bones, not connected. And there was a moving of God, and there was prophecy, and bone came to bone all over the world, and a great army rose up by the Spirit of God, and became a church, if you will, through prophecy, and skin came upon it, and order came upon it. But he's also talking about the gathering together of Israel. Israel, Jesus talked about what we just read about there in the 24th chapter there. He talked about how they would be spread out all over the nations. He talked about, he said, you see these buildings here and the stones of the temple? Not one will be standing upon another. In the year 70 A.D., the emperor Titus came to Jerusalem and he sacked Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, knocked down those beautiful walls, melted all the gold, took all the gold, and the Jewish people called the Diaspora were spread out over all of the earth for over 2,000 years. Spread over all the earth, not, not having their own land anymore. That happened. Now can you imagine someone reading in 1940, let's say, 
1930, 1920, 1910, 1900s, reading the Scripture where God says, I will open up the graves and raise them, the Jewish people from the graves, and bring them to their own lands. And you will say to yourself, that's impossible. For 2,000 years, the, the Jewish people, this tiny ragtag army, they're scattered all over the earth. They don't have their own, their own land anymore. That's impossible. And then in 1948, after World War II, the United Nations took a vote. It took about nine minutes to take the vote. And they declared that Israel was a nation. The Bible talks about a nation would be born in a day. In 1948, it began to come from all over the world, this ragtag army of Jewish people to this desolate land of Israel that had been fought over for the last 2,000 years. And they moved in and they inhabited it. And they became a great nation. A powerful nation. They came literally out of the graves. And God brought them back and made them a great nation never to be displaced again. What happened in the 37th chapter of, of Ezekiel is what's called a super miracle. The super miracle. That can ha- can't happen. And it happened in our day. It's ancient history to some of you young people already. But it's, it, it happened. And Jesus said these things would happen. But in the same way, I believe in this gospel of the kingdom, God is gathering together His people from their graves, their spiritual graves, all over the earth and bringing them together and raising up a mighty army that will move as one. That's part of the gospel of this kingdom. It's a great day. There will be, be a great... Uh, let's, see, let's go to Matthew 24, verse 29. Talk about... Okay, verse 29, now we talk about tribulation, the things that will happen in the last days, and we're not going to get into all of this, but these are things that will, that parallel the book of Revelation, the judgments of the book of Revelation, and there are many things we don't fully understand, and that's okay. Uh, backing up verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there'll be famine and earthquake in various places. These are the beginning of birth pains. You talk about the tribulation that's coming. Some of the things that we're reading about here have already happened. Some are happening right now. Famines, earthquakes, kingdom against kingdom. Talks about all of these wars. The thing that I want to get to is verse 31. He said that he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. This verse and the other verses that we may be reading here, he begins to talk about a gathering. He begins to talk about a separation. He he talks about the four winds. In other words, all of the earth, he reaches out. He gathers his elect from the four winds, from the four corners of the earth, if you will. God is doing that today already. He's already reaching out. To all of your brother David last night mentioned the word companies, how God deals with companies, companies of believers. He's reaching out and calling people to walk with him. And here he's talking about when the Son of Man comes, how he will gather his elect from the four winds. And the only thing I want to say there is, if God has put his hand on you, then follow him. If he's put his hand on you, we need to be faithful and follow him. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 36, he says this, and I like this. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. 
So he begins to talk about the things that's going to happen, the tribulation on the earth, the uh, uh, many things that's going to come. There's a lot of things we just don't know. We don't know God's timing. We can feel, and the Bible talks about that. You can sense that something's about to happen. You can sense that something's about to happen, but you don't know exactly when. When a woman is with child, there's a point where you can't see any changes, and then slowly changes begin to take place, and they get uncomfortable. Time goes on, they get real uncomfortable. You ever felt uncomfortable? Spiritually speaking, I'm talking about. You ever felt uncomfortable like, Something, something's going to give here. Something's going to happen. It's like a woman in travail. And a woman now with modern technology, we know, we're close, we know closer to the date when the child's going to be born, but those children, they still have a mind of their own. They still have their own calendar. And a woman, you don't know the exact day, but you know, I'm in, I'm not a woman, I've never given birth, but women know this is the season. This is a season I shouldn't be riding horses, you know, and doing this and that because I'm about to have a baby. Something's about to give here. And you know what? I'm ready. Women are ready. I've never known a woman that you said, you know, they're nine months pregnant and they're two weeks overdue. You say, how do you do? And do they ever say, oh, I just wish it'd be like this forever. I wish things would never change. I'm just so comfortable. This just feels so good. I, I wish it would never come to an end. No. They say, I'm ready. I'm ready to give birth. I'm ready to bring forth this child. I believe that's the way God is, and that's the way we are. There is a male child, 12th chapter Revelation, inside of the church. That's the church is about ready to give birth. And I think God is saying, I'm just about ready. And the church, the woman is saying, and I'm about ready too, Lord. Bring that day now. I'm ready for it. And you can feel that there is a labor. And there is something going on. No one knows the day or the hour, but we know that we're in that season of birth. We're in that season when the Son of God is about to be born. And when this baby is born, 12th chapter of Revelation again, when this little baby is born, what's going to happen when that baby is born? Is it going to be born a cute, little, sweet baby laid in the manger? No, when this baby is born, it's a male child, the Bible says. It's a fully grown male child. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A son is given, not just a child. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called the Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Isaiah the ninth chapter. That's talking about the birth of the Son of God in the churches. We're not just talking about... I don't mean to sound confusing here. I'm not just talking about Jesus being in your heart. That's so important. You can't get to heaven without that. I'm talking about the fully manifested, mature Son of God being born and birthed in the church. That we are. That you are. That is what I'm talking about. He says here, you don't know the day. Even the angels of heaven don't know the day. Not even the Son of God knows the day, but the Father only. But he talks about, we know the season. Do you feel, do you feel like God is doing something in the earth, in the church? We can see things happening in the earth and kind of shaping up maybe the wrong way and things are going the wrong direction. I take 
I hate to say this, I take joy in that. Because the Bible tells us in the last days before the Son of God comes, before He is born in the church, it's not going to be a happy, happy day. It's going to be a dark day. Darkness will cover the earth and gross darkness of peoples, but the Lord shall arise upon you, Isaiah chapter 60. Talks about Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith? He talks about how faith dwindles and how there's a falling away. The whole world is falling away from God. You can't deny it. The whole world at a rapid pace. A rapid pace. Man, the school system, the government, the, 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 everyone is running away from God as fast and quick as they possibly can. And Jesus said these things would happen. There would be a falling away first. Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians. That gives me discouragement, but it gives me hope that we must be in that season. Because darkness is settling on the earth. That means that the sun must be preparing to break forth and to bring light in the church. Don't worry about the world, folks. Don't worry about it. I realize that you feel helpless. Don't worry about it. You can't change it. It's like a locomotive that's going one direction and you can't stop it. And But what you can do is be part of this great kingdom of God that's going to change the earth. Let's be faithful to that. He says, no one knows that, man, that day or hour. Okay, I'll move on. I'm going to close here quickly. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore I say to you, this is speaking to us now, right now this morning. Therefore, I say to you, you do not know on what day your Lord's coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known on what part of the day the thief was coming, he would have stayed away and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I'm going to read one more verse here in a minute and I'm going to close. He talks about being watchful and praying. Being ready, being constantly ready, constantly ready. Have a mindset. You're ready for the appearing of the Lord. You're ready for the Lord to work. Don't get, don't get sleepy. Don't, you know, do what you need to do to be ready. Now, he gives another interesting verse here. Um, it goes on here to say verse 45, and I'll say this, I'm going to close. Uh, this is an interesting verse here. I'll first I'll read it. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. I truly say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. I'm going to pause there and read it again and then I'm going to close. I believe... Who is that faithful and wise servant? I believe one of the things that the Lord is talking about is your elders and and the ministries, the ministry that God has put in the church. Who's that faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? God reveals to the church what they need to know at the proper time. There's a lot of things we don't know. But if we need to know them, God will give us understanding at the proper time. And I believe that God has set out, I believe one of the things he's talking about is setting 
Holy Ghost-filled elders in the last days that are faithful and wise, and they give food to the household, to the church, at the proper time. When times are right, you know, when the elders gather together and the brethren gather with them, what's one of the things that they always teach over and over and over and over and over? Is it how to preach effectively? Nope. Is how to be led by the Spirit. That's right. How to be led, how to sense the moving of the Spirit, how to feed people the proper food at the proper time. Don't choke them. Give them what they need to know at the right time, at the proper time. Just like raising a child. You raise a child, you teach them things where they're at, what they need to know for that age. As they get older, you teach them other things that they need to know. Even so in the church. And God has given us elders in this last day. And I thank God for that. I thank God for the elders that he has given us right here in our midst and all over the world that are trained to give to the church that which they need. As I started off talking about Matthew and Jesus, talking about being led by the Spirit, you learn to be led by the Spirit. You learn to let the Holy Ghost anoint you. Don't worry about using lots of words for things. Just as Jesus spoke to Matthew, that beautiful two-word sermon, follow me. I wished I had been so anointed, I wasn't, instead of being impatient over my brother with the dreadlocks blocking the coffee bar. I wish I had been so anointed that I could have said, friend, follow me. I wished I could have done that. But let's walk in the anointing in such a way that your very presence, your very words, has an effect on people around you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the service today and for letting us share and read the Word of God, some of the things that you have to say to us in this hour. And now we pray that you uh, bless this church and the activities and the events of today. Let them be safe and just let your hand rest on everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like more information about the moving of God's Spirit or resources for your spiritual life, please visit our website at www.globalmissionsinc.org. Thank you.